up quick at about noon. And what a day it is here for our little podcast network here on Wednesday, June 10th. Welcome into the podcast with Damian Barling. I am your host, Damian Barling, and I thank you so much for downloading, subscribing, and I thank you so much for being a part of the show here. Uh, if you're not a subscriber yet, no matter what podcast platform you listen to this, if you're just checking us out here for the first time, maybe if you're becoming acquainted with the show, you found out because of some of the different publicity we've got last week, uh, check us out, man. I think you'll dig it. Hit the subscribe button, particularly there on Apple Podcasts. And if you got an extra second, rate and review us. Rating the show literally takes a split second. All you got to do is hit that fifth star if you think we're worth it. Uh, reviewing the show takes a little bit longer. That takes about 60 to 90 seconds. So if you got that to spare, go ahead and leave us a review. Uh, I said it was a great day for our podcast network here, and I wasn't being sarcastic by any means. The latest episode of Relive featuring CM Punk and John Cena in Chicago at Money in the Bank in 2011. That dropped at midnight. That is available for you on all of your podcast platforms. You could subscribe to that one as well. You'll hear a trailer for that. Easy for me to say. Coming up here in just a couple of minutes. Also, yesterday afternoon, we dropped a new episode of Be Conscious where I was joined by Renee Montgomery. Uh, she played at the University of Connecticut, won a national title there, and won a couple of WNBA championships with the Minnesota Lynx. But more important to this conversation is Renee was part of, you know, what I consider to be the first athlete-driven Black Lives Matter protest. And you'll hear a very, very small portion of my conversation with Renee Montgomery here uh, on the podcast today. If you want to hear the entire conversation, and I really think it's worth you hearing. Uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash Damien Barling. It is available exclusively for our Be Conscious subscribers. Uh, I want to thank Anthony York, uh, who joined us on Patreon last night. I want to thank uh, Alan Holder. Uh, Alan's been a just a tremendous supporter of me, uh, of the lowdown, uh, of the podcast for years. Alan, thank you. Chris Bond joined us. Uh, Sarah Bronze, Robert, Mac Irvin III, some of our latest Patreon members, uh, some of our latest Patreon subscribers. Uh, so thank you for your support and what we are doing here. And I promise you, uh, I give you my word, we are just getting started. We are building something extremely special. Outside of the podcast network, uh, we've got a new episode of the Sacramento Kings podcast presented by HoopBall and the HoopBall Podcast Network posting later on this afternoon. I'm going to be sitting down with uh, Aaron Bruski, and we're going to talk about the NBA restarting, and we're going to talk about what that may look like for the Sacramento Kings. And I had a very extended conversation yesterday with the folks over at the Kings Pulse podcast. Brendan and Richard, if you haven't heard that, uh, it's part of the Kings Herald. They're a part of the Blue Wire Pods Network, a podcast network that I very, very much believe in. And uh, it was great talking to those guys. We had a, you know, a 60-minute conversation that ranged from, you know, my start in the business to my thought on the NBA returning to the bubble, man. I really did enjoy talking to those guys. Uh, that's the King's Pulse. That's going to drop sometime today as well. Uh, I'm always open to admitting that uh, every once in a while I, 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 I sit down and learn something. And one of the reasons I love sports and one of the reasons I love this podcast is because we can sit down and we can learn from each other. And, well, I learned something yesterday. I learned that Michael Jordan has some sort of fishing team. I had no idea this was a thing. Uh, this was not covered in The Last Dance. I was unaware that this is what he did with his free time. But apparently there is a tournament called the Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament. It is one of the biggest fishing events in the country. So, shame on me. 
And I, I guess this, I, I'm, I'm, I'm unclear if this was the first time that, that Jordan entered the tournament, but he has a crew. He had a boat called Catch-23. These dudes caught a 442-pound fish. 442-pound blue marlin. It was in North Carolina. It was uh, it, it was just shockingly huge. However, uh, it was the sixth heaviest marlin reeled in here on this tournament. The fish wasn't big enough to place into the top three, so uh, Jordan and his team are not eligible for any prize money. There is no word yet on if Michael Jordan has taken that personally or not. I suppose we'll find out in... 22 years. But I was unaware of this. This was this was major news to me. I had no idea that that this was a a thing that Michael Jordan was into. That was that is a shockingly large fish. Every time I get an alert that says giant, you know, fish whether they it says marlin or whatever, it's a giant something caught on the coast of whatever. I I always look cuz I'm just like I got to see it. Like I want to see it. I was not expecting to see that. It, it is it's 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 something. It is absolutely something. Uh, on a more serious note, I thought it'd be fun to, to to start with a lighthearted story there with Michael Jordan. And I don't even know that this is on a more serious note, but it does it it does pertain to the turn to the return of the NBA. Uh, it looks like, and this is according to Richard Deitch of the Athletic, it looks like with the NBA uh, set to return here coming up on July 30th. One of the things we've speculated about. Uh, our broadcast and how they'll resume. We know there aren't going to be any fans there, but how many people would be in the arena? Would would there actually be camera people? Would there be announcers? Like, how would this all work? It looks like they are going to go with remote cameras. Now, I don't know if this is... I Because part of me wonders if this is all going to change, like if the game plan is going to change when the NBA Finals get here. Because I, you know, if all goes well, that means you've gotten through August and you've gotten through, I think the NBA finals are set to start maybe the last day or close to the last day in September. And so if you're able to get through all of that and you're, you're in October, barring a major setback in this country, you know, you know, the, the, the CDC, there might be even, you know, more relaxed guidelines than there are now. Maybe, you know, maybe maybe they could open things up a little bit for the NBA Finals. And I don't mean open it up in terms of having a, a, a ton of fans there. I mean, okay, maybe we have a little bit more of an elaborate camera set, set up where you don't have to have, you know, robotic cameras. I don't really care about the broadcasters, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in the sense of, I believe, you know, a broadcasters, they're, they're, not, a, they're not a visual aspect of the game, meaning that if they're not courtside I don't think they can do I don't think they do their job differently I think it's probably a little bit more difficult for radio people because radio people relying on TV they can't see the entire court Uh, so I think it's I think it's a little bit more different or it's a little bit more difficult than people who would be calling the games uh, both locally and nationally if they have to do it remotely and again it sounds like that's what they're going to have to do Uh, Richard Deitch I believe it was talked to Kevin Harlan Uh, Kevin Harlan said what I've heard from the folks at TNT is we will be in the studios in Atlanta and they will set up as close to possible a broadcast table 
like we would have courtside. We will have, I'm assuming, crowd noise pumped into our headsets. I think for the viewer, I don't think it's going to seem dramatically different. Now, you're not going to have courts that you recognize from Milwaukee or Los Angeles or Boston, so that's going to be a little bit weird. Uh, But if we're all just kind of sitting there watching, I don't know that we're going to notice a great deal of difference. The one thing I have heard is that not until the conference finals would there be considerations for broadcasters being in the setting. That might be the first time that an actual broadcaster might be on site during a conference final and, of course, the NBA finals. So there you go. Uh, Rather than the the NBA finals, which I just proposed there, uh, Kevin Harlan said there's been discussions about uh, the conference finals. And that makes sense. It makes sense for a lot of reasons because the, you know, the, the, the crowd or, or, or the bubble, if you will, will have gotten significantly smaller while you have allowed family and friends to be there, which that starts the second round of the playoffs. Like when I think what they're doing is smart. Like they're, they're, they're once teams are kind of weeded out, you know, once the, once the extra teams that came in, once the early playoff eliminations are are done, you know, then family and friends start to come in. It's like, okay, I still think you've shrank the bubble dramatically by getting rid of those teams, and now you're you you know you're adding a new element. But those elements, like they're going to be cut down because when teams are eliminated, the family and friends go. So I I like this idea. I think that it works. I I think the NBA is doing this right. I just hope that. The overall process, I think their approach to broadcasting works. I think their approach to the bubble works. I think all of this stuff works. I just hope that it's, I hope that it's safe. Like, I I hope that there's no, I hope that there's no, like, major setback. There's no major catastrophe that winds up, you know, wiping out a team. As You know, as I was talking to the guys yesterday with the Kings Pulse, one of the things that they asked was, you know, like, well, you know, like, can you imagine if, you know, like half of the Los Angeles Lakers got wiped out. And I started to think, you know, as we were talking, if half of a team gets wiped out, they probably have to call it off. They probably have to call the whole season off and just say, okay, this didn't work. We've, we've got to get out of this. And obviously nobody wants that to happen. Uh, so I, but I, I think the approach that they're taking is correct. I think they're taking a, a, a very cautious approach, uh, which is obviously, you know, the smart thing to do, given the fact that this COVID-19 is still very much going on, despite the fact that it's not quite in the headlines like it used to be. Uh, I think I saw something for Dr. Fauci for the first time yesterday, and what I saw from him was not comforting at all. Uh, but, you know, I just I hope we can get through the NBA season because I know if we get through the NBA season, we're going to have a start to the 2021 season. And then I saw, so this 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 actually really did kind of blow my mind. I saw that there was a a... A, a, a mark attributed to a remark uh, attributed to, I think it was the Hawks general manager that the NBA could condense the 2021 season, which is something that I absolutely did not expect. Now I understand the you know possibility of it. He says, uh, quote, this is Travis Schlenk. I'm sure I'm pronouncing his last name wrong, but he's the Hawks general manager. He says, quote, because of this circumstance, I think the league wants to stay as close to its original schedule as possible. There's a lot of different reasons for that. The college season, the draft, and how all of that plays out. So that's why they've laid out a timeline where it would be a very quick turnaround from the NBA Finals to the start of the season. Okay, so I, I if, if we laid this out correctly, and if you recall, the start of next season, the, the start of... 
the resumption of this season is locked in. The start of when the, quote, regular season games is locked in. The start of the play-in games, locked in. Playoffs, locked in. Uh, the playoff series will adjust by, like, when they end. They have seven-game series planned for all, but they'll move up upon elimination if games or if series only go four games or five games because they're not locked in the same way for travel purposes and, you know, TV schedules will just have to adjust because we've got to get the, the content on the air and they'll just be happy with that. And the only things that weren't locked in were the start of training camp, which was November. Remember the NBA Finals, Game 7 of the NBA Finals, I think it was October 12th. Free agency, the draft, they were right after that. And then training camp was like November. It was like early November. And then December 1st, I think it was, was the start of next season. And so that makes sense to me. I had originally thought, I thought, man, just make opening day Christmas Day and then run, you know, run a new calendar for a year. But it sounds like what they're trying to do is they're trying to get back to the original schedule. And if they start in December, they could probably manipulate to the schedule. Like, I don't, they might be able to get 82 games in, in that, in that condensed time. Maybe you run the finals into late June instead of kind of the early part of June. But maybe if you run the, the NBA finals just a couple of weeks later, yeah, like they, they, they might be able to pull it off. If you started on December 1st, you could probably run close to 82 games, uh, if not all 82. But you heard, you know, that what the Hawks general manager was, was saying there is, is that they want to get back to the original schedule, which is, again, something I didn't think they were going to do. I thought they might change the NBA schedule moving forward, and it might be that Christmas to, or, or roughly Christmas, December, to to August, uh, but I I guess maybe that's not something that they're they're exactly interested in. So that was the one thing in the proposal that the players approved that it was like okay this is up you know this isn't this isn't locked in it's a tentative timeline it's a tentative timeline for training camp on November tenth it's a tentative timeline for the start of the NBA season to be December first. So how you know how this turnaround happens will will be pretty interesting. But I didn't think there would be any way that they would condense games. That's the that's the part about this that really surprised me, because if if they get through this if they get through this bubble and they crown an NBA champion, I think they I, I I think they feel like they dodged a bullet. You know they were able to get regular season games in. They were able to get the playoffs in their entirety in. They were able to crown a champion. Obviously, you know they they've they've lost a ton of money from television broadcast, but or in, in, you know, live revenue broadcast. They lost a ton of money just period in general. And oh, by the way, here is something I guarantee you, you probably forgot about. Remember the fiasco with China? Uh, and Daryl Morey and, and, and Hong Kong and, and all of that? Dude, that was this season. It wasn't 2020, the calendar year, but it was this NBA season. They were already operating with the presumption of losses. Not, not, you know, they certainly weren't operating in the red because of China, but they were losing money. They weren't going to make as much money because of what happened with China. That happened this season. They're already operating with that sitting on their shoulders. And then you have, you know, COVID-19 coming along, knocking out 
you know, live revenue, knocking out a great deal of, uh, uh, of television money and so on. But I thought if they got through this, they, they would feel like, wow, we made it. Okay. So let's, we, we, we have to get ourselves back and we have to get ourselves as, as close to operating in the black as, as we possibly can. And, and I'm not talking about overall, I'm talking about year to year. We've got to get back in the black because they're, I don't think they're not losing enough money to operate in the red, not even close. But they are, they're not making as much money, that's for sure. And so like, hey, we've got the opportunity to play 82 games. We're just going to have to change the schedule here a little bit. And my thought was if they can get, if they can set up next season to operate with 82 games, even if the season, you know, goes longer than it normally does, even if it's under some sort of new calendar, by the time it ends, allegedly, there should be a vaccination for this. And at least that's what we've been led to believe. And now maybe we're getting back to the Golden One Center filling up with fans. Maybe now we're getting back to fans filling up arenas. Maybe now we're getting back to home court advantages in the next season. Because I don't believe it's going to be the 2020-21 season. I believe it's going to be the season after that, 21-22, where it's normal. I don't believe next season is going to be normal. But I think it's the season after that. So why not just try to get through next season again? And then if you have to have the short turnaround from, say, August to maybe maybe a middle of November, maybe that's when you do it. That's when you do the quick turnaround. Just try to get the 82 games in. Just try to satisfy those television deals. Try to, try to manage this, this COVID crisis as best you can. Uh, even if the turnaround is is short, and even if you're operating under a different schedule, because if you want to go back, like if your ultimate goal is to run the schedule that you've always run, which is roughly October to June, just just do it next year. Do, do it. The, do it. Not 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 next season. The the season after next season. Do it after there's supposed to be a vaccination out for this. Do this back when you're in front of your home fans and in your hometown crowds and. There's home court advantages and all that stuff. Do, do it then. This is, of course, just my opinion. But I, I always thought that would be their approach. I always thought they would go through hell and high water. If they crowned an NBA champion this year, they would do everything humanly possible to get 82 games in. Now, they still very, male, very well may starting in December. But that's going to be if they're and I guess it's possible. I guess it's possible to do an 82-game schedule starting in December and ending in, it would, it would have to be late June. And you, you could do it if you're in the bubble because you, you don't have to accommodate for travel. There's probably not going to be stretches where teams are off for three or four days. You, could, you probably could do it. Though I'm, I'm trying to picture an entire NBA season in the bubble. That's, that's something. That, that's, that's absolutely something. Uh, as is Russell Westbrook. Uh, if you're new to the show, I am an unapologetic Russell Westbrook fan. I absolutely love him. He is my favorite player in the NBA. I know his shortcomings. You don't have to text them to me. I promise I know. Uh, but I absolutely love the guy. And I love him even more because of this. Some of you may have heard about the 1921 uh, Tulsa race massacre for the first time over the course of the last couple of weeks. You may have heard the term Black Wall Street for the first time 
in the last couple of weeks. Uh, well, Russell Westbrook uh, is partnering with Stanley Nelson and the production company Blackfin to produce a series called Terror in Tulsa, The Rise and Fall of Black Wall Street. Russell Westbrook said, When I learned about the heartbreaking events that happened in Tulsa nearly a hundred years ago, I knew this was a story I wanted to tell. It's upsetting that the atrocities that transpired then are still so relevant today. It's important we uncover the buried stories of African Americans in this country. We must amplify them now more than ever if we want to create change moving forward. If you're unfamiliar with uh, and, and what this what this series does, according to Variety, is it interweaves both past and present day narratives in order to investigate the tragic events and, and, and its continuing impact, the, tra- the tragic events in, in Tulsa. And, you know, as Westbrook said there in that quote, a lot of you may have heard about it for the first time uh, over the last couple of weeks. You're going to hear a lot about it next year. Because next year is going to be the 100-year anniversary. And I believe this is going to be the first time in my lifetime that Black Wall Street is going to be a very prominent topic. I didn't learn about it. I never learned about this in school. I learned about it probably, I, I had heard the term probably for the first time maybe 10 years ago when I was 20. Yeah, that's about right. Maybe, t- maybe 9 or 10 years ago. I never really studied it or read anything on it until about 4 years ago. If you're unfamiliar with what Black Wall Street was, there was a town as uh, there was like a, 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 a Tulsa. There, there was a town outside of Tulsa uh, called Greenwood. It was like a district, basically, uh, and it was organized by Booker T. Washington in 1906. The area was just almost a hundred percent black, and it was very prosperous. Uh, black people were, you know, they were making money off of oil. There were black businesses all over town. There were newspapers, grocery stores. Uh, there were multiple movie theaters, and there was an incident. Basically, a race war started over an incident in an elevator, as so often happened back in these times with a black man and a white woman. The National Guard came to town. Stop me if that sounds familiar. But The National Guard came to town, and what they did is they rounded up a large portion of the black residents in Greenwood. And that wound up leaving the town very vulnerable. So over the course of a couple of days from like May 31st, to I think it was June 4th, um, this mob of white people who stormed like the court when this, uh, w- w- when this you know, incident with the, with the black man and the white woman. And when I say incident, I, I'm, I'm using the term incident because it's never been made clear what happens. It, it, it was a black man and a white woman who knew each other. They worked in the same building together. By all accounts, they had had a fine relationship, but something happened on the on the elevator that that caused you know some you know white guys to run to the elevator and find out what was going on. And you know the stories of what actually happened are all very different. It happened over the course of a couple seconds, so we're not talking about like a sexual assault or a rape or something like that. We're, I don't exactly know what we're talking about, and neither did anybody there. So when, you know, these, these people in Greenwood and in, in just outside of Greenwood in, in the city of Tulsa found out about this, they stormed the courthouse. And ultimately what happened was over several days in, in late May and early June, this mob of people, this, and 
you know, they were white. They were from Tulsa. They, they set fires to all of these black businesses. At one point, airplanes carrying more of these mob members began firing on black residents from the sky and dropping small bombs on businesses in an attack that we later learned was coordinated by the police department, by the Tulsa Police Department. The amount of black people in, in, in this attack, the amount of black people murdered in this attack is, uh, attack is believed to be as high as 300, but because the city was allowing undocumented burials in an effort to hide how many people they murdered, we'll never truly know the number. Uh, we know 191 businesses were destroyed. Uh, over 1,200 houses were burned. We know that the Red Cross said 10,000 black people were made homeless because of this attack. And a report in 2001 determined that the city of Tulsa worked in unison with this mob of people who started the riot. And the Black Wall Street Massacre, it didn't become a part of the Oklahoma school curriculum until this year. That is a tragic, buried portion of this country's history. Do I have everybody's attention now? Oftentimes in professional wrestling, what's going on inside of the ring is merely a backdrop for what's going on outside. Few real-life situations have ever played out in storyline form more dramatically than what went on with CM Punk in the summer of 2011. One night in Las Vegas was supposed to launch the next three weeks of television. Instead, it launched the next three years of CM Punk's career. Relive the pipe bomb. Relive the walkout and relive CM Punk versus John Cena in Chicago. I am the voice of the voiceless. I seriously resent you for not putting me over three years ago when you should have. Episode number two of Relive featuring John Cena and CM Punk in Chicago is available for you right now wherever you get your podcast from, radio.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever it is. I hope you'll take a listen. It's a podcast project I'm very proud of. It's unlike what we do here every day. It is a weekly series that drops every Wednesday, and it's going to operate in seasonal form. Episode uh, number one is available. It features The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania 17, as we just mentioned uh, episode number two just became available. Uh, season one consists of 12 different episodes, and then we'll take a break. We'll work on the production uh, for season number two. Uh, but it's a series I really hope you'll check out uh, current and past wrestling fans. I think we'll really enjoy it. It's kind of a documentary-style podcast. It's something that I've really, really enjoyed uh, putting together. Uh, I, it, it, it is an absolute beast to put together. But I loved the finished product. And this is a podcast, this episode I really liked. Now, I really like all of them, to be honest with you. I like, I like episode number two. But 
I really feel like the podcast hits its stride next week in episode number three, which focuses on Lex Luger, WrestleMania 10. And there are just some some wild behind-the-scenes stories of what's going on with the company. So if you're a wrestling fan, again, past or present, I hope you will check that out. It is available for you uh, right now wherever you get your podcast from. The Major League Baseball Association is making a proposal to Major League Baseball for a season of 89 games uh, with a prorated share of the salary and expanded playoffs. Uh, that should be uh, proposed, uh, I, I believe, today on Wednesday or at the absolute latest tomorrow. Um, the this this is I I don't know I don't know that there's optimism behind this. I'm not really sure, but. This was this was kind of the latest story I read, and this was the Players Association's their counter proposal to the latest owners' uh, proposal, which included the 76 game season and the 75 percent of players' prorated salary. The players are trying to get to the agreement that they signed several months ago. They're trying to get back to the agreement that they signed back on March 26, where it's like, hey, we told you in March. Season gets cut down. You can, you can, we'll cut our salaries. You know, we'll cut our salaries to a certain percent, and we'll play on a prorated contract of a of a percentage of our salary. Since then, Major League Baseball has just been like, ah, can you cut a little bit more? Can you take a little bit more off? And now, like, I'm not really sure. You know, the 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 players like they're shooting down these deals at a very quick rate. Like by the time I'm reading, like, oh, Major League Baseball is presenting a deal. About an hour later, I'm reading that the Major League Baseball Players Association has laughed the deal off the table, and they're working on a counterproposal. And it's like, why aren't you two entities working in unison? You know that Major League Soccer is coming back. Major League Soccer is going to be back July 8th. That's, that's less than a month away. Major League Soccer is going to be back before baseball. Now, I understand the dollar figure difference in all of this. I'm not naive. I, I, I get it. This all comes down to dollars and cents. I, I completely understand that. But still, why is it that it seems that only the NBA and the NBA Players Association can work in unison together? There were no proposals that were shut down. There were no negotiating in the media. I think both entities kind of, you know, threw stuff out there in, in the media to see how fans would react to it, to see what the... You know, the, 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 uh, check the pulse, if you will. But I don't think they were negotiating through the media. I think they were working together the whole time. And when Adam Silver pre presented this proposal to the Board of Governors, he knew that it was going to pass with the Board of Governors, and he knew when it passed from the Board of Governors and it had to go to the Players Association, he knew it was going to pass then. There was never a question mark as to when Adam Silver presented this proposal as to whether it was going to pass or not. But you've got the Players Union, the Players Association in Major League Baseball and the owners in a pissing contest. I said this the other day, and I think it's just the most adequate description of what Major League Baseball is. They turned a global pandemic into a freaking labor work stoppage. They've turned it into a work stoppage, which is just amazing. Because you would think at this point, it's like, hey, let's get back there. Like, like we, we have an opportunity to... You know, we've got the opportunity to get back together. We, we really do have the opportunity to do something special here. It's different. It's going to be unique. It's not going to be normal. But we have the opportunity to be out there first in front of fans. Fans that are clamoring for sports. Fans have been sitting around watching what is essentially ESPN Classic for five months, for four months. Let's give them some baseball. 
Nope. Nope. Let's just whip it out, piss all over the place, and see how much we can anger our fans here. Shoot, I'm angry, and I'm not the biggest baseball fan in the world. I don't have this emotional tie to Major League Baseball. And I'm still looking at them like, God, you guys are freaking idiots. Soccer is going to be back before you. I think baseball is going to happen. I just don't know in, in, in what form. A couple of more stories we're going to touch on here in, in just a minute. The, the irony of, of, of Malcolm Jenkins talking about Colin Kaepernick and his need to be back in the league. Uh, you'll hear what ESPN senior writer Howard Bryant had to say yesterday on the topic. I've always believed that Howard Bryant is the definitive voice uh, when it comes to sports and politics. Uh, he, was my, he was actually the catalyst behind the launch of the Be Conscious podcast. Um, I had the idea to launch Be Conscious about a month and a half before I actually did. And the reason I waited that long is because I was working with uh, the editor, or excuse me, with the um, publisher of Howard Bryant's book. I wanted Howard Bryant to be my first guest on that podcast. And uh, he got that podcast off to an extraordinary start. It's, it's the... I've always said it's the greatest interview I've ever done, and it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Howard Bryant. Uh, that interview, by the way, is available free on Patreon. You don't have to be a subscriber to hear that. If you want a sample of what Be Conscious is about, you can check out the very first episode of Be Conscious in the archives there over at patreon.com slash Damian Barling. A new episode of Be Conscious is available, uh, and it features Renee Montgomery, a former NCAA champion, a two-time WNBA finals champion. And I want you to hear a, a portion of our conversation here today. Uh, the conversation is, it's, it's, it's close to 40 minutes, but we, we talked about a couple of topics, a couple of sports topics that I think would interest you, specifically the fact that she was on the Minnesota Lynx team back in 2016, which was, they were really the first, they were the first athletes to protest on behalf of Black Lives Matters. And there were some repercussions for it. And not coincidentally, this was all in Minnesota. So I talked to Renee Montgomery about how this initial demonstration back in 2016, again, this was two months before Colin Kaepernick. This was five months before LeBron James wore that I Can't Breathe t-shirt. And I talked with Renee about the origins of that demonstration and how it came about. Yeah, so I remember um, our captains leading the charge. So that's a, a Simone Augustus, Rebecca Brunson, Lindsey Whalen, Maya Moore. I remember them saying, the, one of the first things that I remember triggering my mind, like, wow, was they said, hey, look, man and management is behind us. And I'm like, okay, like, that's crazy. And this, because again, this is before even a Kaepernick start. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. For me to hear that, I was like, wow, okay, so that's cool. And so basically, like you said, our shirts, I can't breathe, and it starts talking about the police brutality. Well, it, it sounded good, and then all of a sudden, the Minnesota Police Department said they won't be covering our games, you know, if we're going to do those type of shirts, because at that time, people weren't educated on what Black Lives Matter me matters means. And so it was almost like an educational process because at that point it was new. It was really new. Like, well, what does Black Lives Matter mean? Is this anti-cops? Is this anti-flag? You know, that's when all those things were going on. So yeah. the cops walked out on us because I'm assuming, I want to assume <laughs> that they walked out on us because they just weren't educated enough to know what we were trying to say. Mm -hmm. 
So now fast forward to 2020 and you see every company talking Black Lives Matter. I mean, you hear the NFL saying mm. Black Lives Matter. And that's something that you might not have ever heard. And, you know, people are like, what do they mean if they're not? To hear them even say it is shocking. You know what I mean? So that so you can just see the progress from 2016 to where people didn't even really understand the term. Like, why doesn't all lives matter, you know, to where now Black Lives Matter is just an understood term in 2020. So I don't think it's completely understood, but I want to add. So this is something that I've struggled with because, you know, I was on the radio in 2016 and I, I listened to Colin Kaepernick talk in front of the media the day after that camera phone caught him sitting on the bench for 18 minutes. And I I started to understand his purpose. I started to understand what he was talking about. And I started to understand really, not that I hadn't understood before, but Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Muhammad Ali, that was, that was before my lifetime. Uh, So seeing what Kaepernick was doing, it was like, okay, I I get this. I understand. And one thing that I've really struggled with is kind of what you were just talking about. You were talking about the progress from 2016 to 2020. And in one sense, I think because you you're a very, you know, we've known each other for, you've, you've got a big personality. You're, you're, I think you are by nature, like an optimistic person and yeah. you tend to look on, like you look on the good side and I look at it more like, yo, where were y'all four years ago? Yo, the NFL, is, <laughs> the NFL is right. talking about black lives matter. Like Amazon is tweeting about black lives matter. Like y'all, where were you, you know, when it was Alton Sterling, where, matter of fact, where were you when the Minnesota police walked out on the Minnesota links when those group of women stood out there before Kaepernick, when those uh, women stood out there in front of their audience and said, here's what we're going to do. There are some problems here in our city. There are some problems here in this country, and we're going to address that. I've had a problem like saying like, oh, yeah, the progress, like welcome aboard, whereas I've been looking at most companies or even people like, why did it take you so long? Why did the body count have to get so high before you decided to realize, oh, yeah, maybe this is something we should learn more about. Yeah, but that, you know, that brings me back to, I saw a quote that said that America's lucky that all we're asking for is equality and not revenge. So if all I'm asking for, me personally, is equality, I'm going to be like, if people do finally change their mind, I have to give them the space to do it. So I can't be so mad. Like, it's almost, I mean, I was raised in the church, so that's probably why I always look at things that way. But if somebody is going to change, I got to allow, allow them that space to change. So while I know every owner in the NFL does not, is not going to be holding up a sign at the protest. Yeah. <laughs> I know that I understand that, but the fact that they feel the need that they have to say black lives matter and a Roger Goodell has to make a statement. That's a big deal. Like they've been unapologetic almost since existence. Yeah. Like it's been an unapologetic tone that they've had about it. Like, Nope, you got to stand. Don't care. America, America, America. Like, and they always hid behind like America, America, America. So that's a humbling experience for them that they have to say, like some people will never say those three words together. Black lives matter just out of sheer, like I'm not doing it. I don't want to say black lives matter. You know what I mean? So some people will literally never say it. So the fact that they felt that they had to because of social pressure I love it. There was, you went to school at UConn. You're a a national champion there with Gino Auriemma, one of his many national titles. I know you played uh, with the Connecticut Sun as well. What was your experience? And I only ask this because I've lived in Connecticut. That's where we met. And I am familiar with the Connecticut Sun fan base. And while they're all lovely people, I know what the fan base looks like. And I'm, you know... It's always different for black people who are athletes to talk about the black experience in certain 
parts of the world. Like you, you just laid it out perfectly when you were talking about Alabama and the different football players and, you know, you cheer for them on Saturday, but you wouldn't let them date your daughter. Like what was your experience in, in Connecticut, both in college and as a, a as a pro player? You know, that, like very amazing. And so I, I'm, I'm leading with that because I think that for me and, and for even a lot of athletes, I think, you know, we see that good side of people in a sense of we see the Saturday game day face people. So we see the way people treat us is they treat us as the athlete that they love. And that's where I, even with me, you know, I think a lot of people are probably surprised about me being so very outspoken about this or so very like, you know, passionate about how, how passionate I am about what's going on. Um, I think it's because for that very reason, just because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily affect me. You know, when I went to UConn, they treated us amazing, like royalty. When I went to the Connecticut Sun, they did the same. And these are predominantly white cities, people. But that's the point. I think that's the whole point. The reason that it's, it's making it a big movement is because white people are speaking out. So yes, maybe that I'm an athlete and I always get to see the game day faces of the fans. But it's still a problem that affects all of us. Mm-hmm. So. I think for me, I mean, my experience was good. I would say in West Virginia, <clears throat> they don't really follow me <laughs> in a sense of if I, when I won a championship in Minnesota, there was nothing about it, you know? And so a lot of people are, were up in arms about that. I'm sure there's some racism behind that. I just never really cared. <laughs> there was, there was plenty of newspaper articles in Minnesota. I sent those to my parents. Like, and that's, that's really what happened. Like I went to some stations and, and got the newspapers from some gas stations in Minnesota sent them down to West Virginia for my parents so that they could, you know, cause they're old school. They like to actually read the paper and that's, <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they keep, you know what I mean? Like, so in case people are wondering, they're those people that like keep newspapers and stuff. So they were really sad. I should have said that part too, to rewind. They were really sad when they opened the paper after I had won a championship and there wasn't anything about their daughter in it. And I'm homegrown. I rep West Virginia tough everywhere I go. So they were really upset. So I didn't really, you know, my, my solution to that was just buying up the papers, but, of course, I know that there's probably some racism attached to that. Um, I just ignore the racism in West Virginia. And now that I'm here in Atlanta, I mean, like, <laughs> there's no better place than if you want to be feel a part of a community and feel a part of the movement. I mean, it's alive here in Atlanta. Yeah, I'm so glad you said where you were from because I was going to have to have you mention that so people knew where that that accent that you uh that you hit certain <laughs> words with came from that is uh yeah west virginia yeah and that's day. why i say i'm homegrown like i tell people all the time like yeah i'm from west virginia like i rep it really tough and west virginia definitely has its racist ways like my sisters went so i went to a school outside of my district but the schools in my district have heavy racism throughout this the school system um and so yeah i saw it every day like i, I saw it every day growing up and I'm one of the types, like you already know, I kind of just ignore things. Like I'm kind of like, yeah, I see it, but I'm not going to, you know, if it doesn't bother me, I don't really, you know, I don't really pay it any mind. But I think that's the problem now. Like maybe people like me that just kind of let it go or let it pass. So now that's why I'm taking it upon myself to be outspoken. Did the 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 tone about you, because the Minnesota teams that you were on were, were great. Like the, the, those Minnesota Lynx teams that you, and you, I mean, you just mentioned Hall of Famers there when you were talking about Simone Augustus and Maya Moore and that whole crew right there. Did the tone change uh, in the way that you were covered or in the way that you were talked about after you guys made that demonstration in 2016? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think some of the tone changed because some people were torn because at that time, 
some people are like, wow, I have family in the military and wow. Um, you know, I love you girls, but I, you know, I have cop, but my dad's a cop. So people really, it changed in a sense that people felt torn that they had to choose between their favorite team and, and basically America. Because at that time, people, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they didn't know, yeah, you know right, what I mean? No, like, right. Yeah, no, that was people perfect. People were yep. really, people were really sad because they loved us that much. And in Minnesota, people don't know, Minnesota has a very strong fan base for, for, for the Lynx. Yeah. And so people were legit sad, torn to their core. They almost wanted to get educated. Like they were like, why did you do it? Like, you know, like they were asking in a sense, like, help me understand why you would want to be disrespectful to the flag. And that's when people, I mean, and still to this day, I mean, Drew Brees made a mistake and tried to make it about the flag again. That's when people did, had no idea that that had nothing to do with the flag. Like that's when Black Lives Matter was directly against American patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and I guess, you know, to take the Renee Montgomery optimism side of all of this at least oh, they at least they finally come around you know because i've spent the last week shaking my head like y'all are really late to this party the good food is gone the good alcohol yeah, they is gone listen in Black Lives Matter fashion, they came on colored people time. They came on CP time. <laughs> so that's, that's all I'm going to say. Then a lot of y'all came on CP time. Welcome to the movement, okay? Yeah, man, that is that is the most fitting explanation ever. You mentioned going out uh, and handing out water during the protest after such a, a, a scary moment in the evening where the protest, or, or really the, the, the rioting portion of the protest was at kind of a, a fever pitch. You know, what made you decide, like, okay, I've got to break this quarantine. i got to get out of there, and, you know, I've got to get out there and, and be a part and make sure that this all, you know, stays peaceful. Not only were you out there a part of it, you were out there helping out with it. Yeah, so that was what I thought. So I'm thinking, like, when I was watching the news, just when, like everyone else, first of all, I was nervous because the news only showed the bad. And at that mm-hmm. time, there had been some rioting. Um, but secondly, I'm, I was thinking, like, how in the world are these people out here in Atlanta – Nine hours at a time chanting and walking and like we talked about earlier, it's 88 degrees out here at times and they're they're out there for nine hours. So then that's when I got the idea like, oh, I'm gonna go bring them water. Like that's literally just how the whole thing came about. Like, I'm gonna go bring the protesters water. So then I already had a relationship with Defiance Fuel as a water company and I, I called them up. I'm like, hey, I got this idea you know, the protests, the crowds are, are building here in Atlanta. And how do you guys feel about sending me some cases of water that I can hand out? And they was like, oh, we love it. We're sending you 10 cases. And I literally just went out there with a group of like three or four or five of us. And we started just handing it out and the people's reaction, like, and I'm so glad. So Snook had told me like, there's, there's no feeling like once you're out there, cause I talked about, I asked her, was she, was she scared and everything like that? And she was younger. So it was different. But as she got older, there were other, marches and stuff and she said there was no better feeling than to be a part of people that were fighting for change and so just just hearing that when I went down there I get it now it's why I keep going back and handing out waters and you know I'm talking about handing out waters but I'm still out there and it feels it feels good to be a part of this movement and how is the is is the water company tied to the Renee Montgomery Foundation and this GoFundMe page that you got going on it, it's not. So the thing about Defiance Fuel is, so I was like, I had told him, I was like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. I need more water, basically. And they were like, uh, because I think they thought that it was going to be like, you know, almost a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And originally it, it was. And so they actually have pledged to give water to the frontline workers as well. So I don't want to keep asking them for more water. So I'm like, all right, cool. Thank you for your help. 
but I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to still keep doing it, but just on my own. So sometimes they will, like if they can send me a couple cases, they will, but I just didn't want to keep asking them because they're already sitting out a lot of water. Oh, okay. So, and that's where the GoFundMe page came into, came into play. Exactly. And that's exactly. So I'd already done, so they had sent me those 10 cases. And so I went to like three or four protests and I'm handing them out like, like candy basically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, man, I love this. And then I was talking to some, some of the organizers down there and it's called Organized Defiance. And they were saying how, yeah, we actually want to keep like some type of energy going all the way up until November to the polls to keep, because now you see it's the cool thing, like Obama, back when Obama was running, everybody was posting that their stickers, I voted, you know, you see it today, like it's, it's the cool thing to do again. So it's because the situation is still relevant. So they want to keep going through November. So that's when I was like, all right, I'm gonna need a lot of money. Like, yeah, and that's when I was like, let me start a GoFundMe. Sometimes we're going to be food. Sometimes we're going to be bring water. And another thing I noticed is that a lot of times the people I was handing stuff to, I think they were just homeless people that were there, part of the crowd. Sure. But that's kind of the people that I've been looking for, honestly. Sure. Like, and, and the homeless people have gathered around Centennial Park knowing that there's a lot of people right now giving out snacks and foods and things like that. So it's an outreach program because, you know, the homeless, I, I didn't even think about it until I got down there. And obviously we know the homeless live on the street every day. So shame on me and shame on us anyway. But when I got down there and started to notice that there's a lot of homeless people that were like, oh, yeah, I'll take a water. That's when it was like, I'm going to feed, I'm going to feed the protesters too. So when I say the protesters, a lot of them are homeless people that are just there. Pro well, I mean, they're protesting for change as well, but they're also homeless. I've linked Renee's GoFundMe page here in the description of this podcast, and you can hear our entire conversation uh, on the latest episode of Be Conscious, which is available exclusively for Patreon members over at patreon.com slash Damien Barling. Appreciate everyone's support over there on that platform as well. Malcolm Jenkins, the New Orleans Saints safety, the head of the Players Coalition, the guy who told Drew Brees maybe he needs to shut the F up. He says, I still don't think the NFL has gotten it right until they apologize specifically to Colin Kaepernick or assign him to a team I don't think they will end up on the right side of history. Uh, he said that, uh, he being, Malcolm Jenkins said that on appearance on CBS this morning, yesterday. He also said at the end of the day, they've listened to their players. They've donated money. They've created an Inspire Change platform. They've tried to do things up to this point. And, but it's one player in particular that they have ignored and not acknowledged, and that's Colin Kaepernick. Uh, I'm going to, I, I, Malcolm Jenkins is such a sticking point for people, you know, is part of the movement, if you will. Malcolm Jenkins is such a sticking point because there are a lot of people who believe he co-opted Colin Kaepernick's demonstration and then ultimately sold him out when the Players Coalition was formed. Uh, there is evidence that points to that being a fact. But I also believe that Malcolm Jenkins wants to do good. I believe that he is trying to do good. Uh, and uh, Howard Bryant, you know, making many appearances on ESPN uh, and SportsCenter recently, he talked to uh, David Lloyd. I want you to hear what Howard Bryant said about the potential return of Colin Kaepernick to the NFL. Well, I, I think it means something very significant. It means that the NFL is recognizing that it has to be what it says it is. You cannot have this all of this commentary. You can't have Roger Goodell giving statements. You can't do all of that. You can't say black lives matter if you're not going to recognize the black life that you ruined, that you actually went out 
and actively sought to end his career. But I think the more important part, David, is the fact that they're a $15 billion industry, and there has to be room for everybody. There has to be room for all of these different attitudes and these different points of view. You saw it with the video with the players yesterday. And there's no way that you're going to be able to say that you're an inclusive organization to everybody if you're going out and you're actively silencing the players. I mean, I just feel like when I think about this, I think about the ability of a country to be able to handle the truth. You, know, you have to be able to handle what's taking place. And it's, it's actually one of the areas where we're at our worst is the inability to actually sit down and say, listen, the world's not going to collapse if Colin Kaepernick is playing football in the NFL. If anything, it's actually helpful. I'm such a big fan of, of Howard Bryant. That's what he had to say uh, most recently about Colin Kaepernick. Here's here's the the one thing about that is I don't want Cap to be a, a token signing. I don't. Now, if 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 the NFL wants to extend some sort of olive branch uh, to Colin Kaepernick to be to uh, you know to be back in the league, to be a part of the league, maybe to be a part of the players' coalition, to be a part of the change, to be a, a face of the Inspire Change organization, I'm fine with that. I'm concerned. I I don't want him to be signed as like some sort of token player. You know what I mean? Like, okay, God, we've got to shut this up. Four years of this. Who has an available spot? You know, in the quarterback position, can you sign this guy already? If Cap is to be signed, I want a team to sign him because it's like, hey, you know, we could really use him. And and there's a chance that you're going to have to play this year. We're not 100% sure where we're at with our starting starting quarterback. Because Cap's not going to get a, he's not going to be signed to a starting job. I, I mean, I said this yesterday. Cam Newton doesn't have a freaking job. He's not on a team right now. And because Cam Newton's on a team, I'm not of the belief that that Colin Kaepernick is going to be signed to a starting position. I can't believe we're about to enter an NFL season where Cam Newton isn't a starting quarterback. Are you kidding? And I, I, I guess this is a result of the pandemic. I guess this is a result of people not being able to, teams not being able to evaluate him in person. But, man... Cam Newton? Really? Cam Newton is not a, a, a member of a roster right now. I find that absolutely incredible. And now we're talking about adding Colin Kaepernick. Now we're talking about getting Colin Kaepernick on a roster. Okay, well, he hasn't played in four years, and I'm an advocate for Cap, but I don't want him to be a... I just don't want him to be a token. I don't want it to be a disingenuous signing. If they sign him, I want it to be real. I want it to mean something. And I want him to have an opportunity to play. I want him to have a, a real opportunity to get on the football field. I'm, again, I'm not, he's not going to get a starting position. That's, 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 that's easy to see. That's easy to spot. But I want him to have an opportunity to be able to play. So, I, you know, we'll, I, we'll see where this goes. I, I still don't believe he's going to get signed. But maybe the NFL in some way, shape, or form extends an olive branch to him. I don't know what that looks like. Uh, I think it starts with acknowledging that they were wrong. I don't know by, you know, the weight of the lawsuit in which they settled that they can acknowledge that they blackballed them. That could wind up costing them, you know, more than it already cost them. And there's already a ton of speculation as to what it cost them. But I look at that speculation the same way I look at Colin Kaepernick's original stances. Everybody heard something and they dug their heels in it. Like the ultimate cap team says he got like $50 million. The people who hate cap said he got like $2 million. I, I don't believe that Cap got $50 million, but there is next to zero chance that he went through a lawsuit with the NFL and he got $2 million out of it. 
I just, there's absolutely no way. None. After 10 years, I did not realize it had been that long. Uh, Reggie Bush's disassociation from the uh, USC Trojans uh, is expected to come to an end soon. Okay. Did that seem that was like a big story that people were talking about yesterday? I was like, what? Do, so, so what does this mean? Like, he's allowed to go to a game? Like, like if I'm Reggie Bush, why would I even want to be associated with USC here at this point? You know, the NCAA Committee on Infractions said that uh, the, 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 he has to disassociate with the university for ten years, and it's because he, he cheated in the national championship and the reg, in the. Um, uh, the national championship appearance and the, the Heisman Trophy, it's, it's all vacated. None of it happened. None of it counts. So uh, Reggie Bush isn't allowed around USC. Okay. I mean, I wonder, I, w- I wonder how these players truly feel about something like this. Like, what is Reggie Bush? Like, is he like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get back to USC. Or is he like, man, skip them. Ten years of this? Like, I don't recall UFC fighting particularly hard for Reggie Bush. Uh, just these these NCAA things, man. You know, vacating wins, vacating trophies, vacating appearances, vacating championships. I find it all to be uh, so silly. But that was a story that seemed to have gotten a lot of attention yesterday. And I just kept reading it over and over and over again. And it was like, why? Like, what does this mean? What What is Reggie going to... You're going to go to a football game with no fans and he's going to cheer? Like, if I'm Reggie Bush, I wouldn't even go back, man. Forget you guys. Y'all didn't fight for me. Y'all didn't stand up for me. Y'all didn't have nothing to say about me. Certainly nothing positive, man. I'm good. I got nothing for you. You keep it moving. As I mentioned, a new episode of the Sacramento Kings podcast presented by Hoopball and the Hoopball Podcast Network will be available later on this afternoon. I'm going to talk with Aaron Bruski today. We're going to talk about the Kings' return to basketball. We're going to talk about the NBA's return to basketball. We'll talk about... Uh, Marvin Bagley's place. We'll talk about what we expect from Buddy Heald and Rashawn Holmes. We'll actually talk about stuff that should be happening out there on the court as practices are set to resume 20 days from today. So we are getting closer and closer to having actual sports to break down, digest, form opinions on. We can go back to arguing about what we saw in the game last night, man. So I'm excited about that. As I mentioned, it was a big day for our podcast network here. If you're a Patreon subscriber, there's a new episode of Be Conscious. Uh, I just gave you the whole deal about the new Relive episode that's available wherever you get podcasts from. If you haven't checked out the Patreon account yet, please do. Patreon.com slash Damian Barling, or you can go to DamianBarling.com. Keep your eye out on the King's Pulse podcast as well. I spoke with those guys last night. That podcast is set to post here today, so you can give that a listen. Really enjoy talking to those guys, and of course, the King's podcast that comes out as well. I really... I'm so thankful for each and every one of you, man, because this podcast, I, 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 I'm like LeBron James, man. Not, not two, not three, not four, not five. Uh, my podcast total is getting uh, pretty high, and I appreciate all your guys' support. So go check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Barling, and we will see you here tomorrow on the podcast with Damian Barling.